Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of SGA Explained. It is the beginning of October when we're recording this. Elliot, you just came back from a wonderful vacation. I'm jealous. Wow, it was great. You know, guys, just want to plug in, and this is not a sponsored thing, but use your SG Rediscovery vouchers and do yourself a favor. Go for a nice vacation. I went with my wife to Oasia downtown, also not sponsored. I just the most relaxing weekend. Can you imagine, in the past two and a half years of COVID, right, bro? No, it's, it's been less than two years, dude. Time has just extended in your mind. Sorry, guys, time is a construct. I don't believe in it. Uh, all I can say is that it felt like two and a half years. I didn't know how much I needed to take a break from reality. Not you, Rovic. I, I love being around you. And actually, I'm quite excited for the next few episodes in our season. Actually, our last few episodes, in fact, because we've uh, we've saved the best I guess towards the end, we've had a lot of guest podcasts coming up, including this one. So I, I just wanted to, to also introduce our guest for today. We are doing another culture episode. If you remember, we've done one before on Islam in Singapore. Today, we're going to be looking at Sikh culture in Singapore. And I'm very happy to have Sean on our show. Sean is the president of the Young Sikh Association in Singapore, which was formed in 2003 by a group of young Sikh Singaporeans to empower other young Sikhs and enhance mutual understanding among people of different ethnic groups. If you paid attention to the news, you may have remembered there was this one incident like two years ago, I think, where this influencer, a female influencer, made, made a comment uh, while she was, I think, at a concert where uh, there were two Sikh gentlemen in front of her and she said, they're blocking me. It's unclear whether she was talking about their height or the turbans, but there was a lot of controversy and the YSA actually invited her to come and engage with them. So yeah. I, I've always known about these guys since then. I thought it was very cool and I'm very happy to have Sean. Sean, welcome to the hey, show. Welcome, Sean. Thanks for joining us. It's a really generous uh, introduction and uh, it's a pleasure to be here, Rovik and uh, Elliot. Uh, it's, it's yeah, real, really wonderful to be speaking with you guys and uh, looking forward to the conversation. Oh, dude, no, the pleasure is all ours and all this very curious bunch of people are always thirsty for more knowledge. So this is a great time. Before we begin, maybe Sean, you could share a little bit more about yourself. Like, who is the man behind the voice? <laughs> that, that might just take up the entire episode so I'll try my best uh, and to keep it short and sharp. So I am the, the president of the Young Sikh Association but I also want to just put it out there that it's actually a volunteer run outfit uh, in the community and uh, truly I mean I, I always like to tell folks that you know it's it's got a flat hierarchy. I may be the person who leads the organization in a, in a very formal sense but truly my belief is that every young person that we speak with, interact with or even who eventually joins us as a, a committee member is in their own right a leader that uh, is able to inspire and get others to work as well. That is great. Could you share a little bit more about like what the YSA does? Like what are some of your activities that you guys uh, carry out? We are a very greedy organization. We like to do everything <laughs> and everything possible. So the, the way we've organized a lot of our initiatives and platforms, we have these five very broad pillars, culture, community, we have conferences, seminars, professional development, and of course, sports, right? So if you look at these uh, sort of five pillars that pretty much informs uh, any initiative or program that we undertake. It's so broad and uh, there is a bit of ambiguity, but it's very deliberate, right? So that we can actually do anything that a young person, for, ex for instance, comes to us and says, hey, I'm interested in this area. I want to work together with you to develop this into a program, an initiative, whether it's one-off or a series. Uh, and we're able to do it if there's, you know, interest and support in the community and especially by young people. But another thing, Elliot, I thought I'd just also share is that despite our name, the Young Seek Association, we are not 
just limited to only the Sikh community. We always have members from other communities join us as well, whether it's for conferences, seminars. And I would like to highlight, I mean, pre-COVID, uh, we used to have a youth expedition program to Punjab, India. And we used to invite young people who are not Sikhs, right? So non-Sikhs as well would join us. And they would stay three weeks uh, in a village in Punjab, eat together, sleep together, suffer a little bit together, but all Singaporean and have that common experience. But yeah, that's just an example of, you know, how open we are as an organization. It's also reflective of that openness that the Sikh community in Singapore especially has as well. It's a big theme in Sikhism, which I think we'll explore later. My disclaimer is that while I have actually a lot of Sikh friends, I realize I know very little about the culture, right? And so today is an opportunity for me to learn by doing as they say. We've done the research but actually, I'm super excited to just hear from you, Sean, as we, as we go through the material on what sea culture looks like in Singapore. So we'll start with really some broad definitions and context setting. That's how we like to do it here at FG Explain. Sikhism or Sikhi, which is Punjabi for disciple, seeker or learner, is an Indian religion that originated in the Punjab region of the Indian subcontinent. And this was around the end of the 15th century common era. Sikhism is actually one of the youngest of the major religions around the world, and it's the world's fifth largest organized religion, with around 25 to 30 million Sikhs as of the early 21st century. Within Singapore, that number is close to 12,000 people. This is from the latest 2020 census, which actually forms around 0.002% of Singapore's population. So uh, some people may asking, you know, we did Islam, which is a pretty big number. Why are we doing Sikhism next? I think it's actually later on we'll see uh, the outsized influence that this small community has made in Singapore is actually quite interesting. In terms of Sikhism itself, it's developed from the spiritual teachings of Guru Nanak, who was the first guru around 1469 to 1539. And then there were nine Sikh gurus who succeeded him. The 10th guru, uh, Gobind Singh, named the Sikh scripture Guru Granth Sahib as a successor, bringing to a close the line of human gurus and establishing the scripture as the last eternal 11th living guru, which basically means that the guru right now is actually a scriptural text, right? Which is, is very interesting. It kind of reminds me actually within Christianity also how they use the Bible as the word of God. Some principles around Sikhism, Guru Nanak taught that living is an active, creative and practical life of truthfulness, fidelity, self-control and purity, which is above metaphysical truth. And that the ideal man establishes union with God, knows his will, and carries out that will. Sikh ethics emphasize congruence between spiritual development and everyday moral conduct. And its founder, Guru Nanak, summarized this perspective as truth is the highest virtue, but highest still is truthful living. How much of this is, is something that you've kind of just known and lived in your life, Sean? Well, you know, Rovik, as, you, as you're describing all this, I, I somehow feel uh, a little redundant almost because you've done quite a bit of research. <laughs> but, but I guess what I do lend to this is exactly, I mean, the point of your question, right? How much of this is internalized by individuals in the community such as myself? I think it's always something that we work towards. I think Sikhs, we always recognize that there's no way that we can uh, sort of achieve any of these very noble aims and uh, and goals, right? But we, we work. And I mean, there's a lot of humility as well in recognizing that, you know, humans were bound to, to make mistakes, we're bound to fumble. But but then, you know, in those instances, where can we seek uh, knowledge, right? It would be, of course, to, to go back to our Guru Granth Sahib to meditate. One thing that you touched on, and which is something that really resonates with me, is how much my, my faith and my religion, it's such a worldly religion, right? It doesn't talk about, for example, just going into some cave, for instance, and, and just reflecting on God and just being 
just doing that, but it actually tells you and impresses upon us that you do have the privilege of, of a life as a human being and as far as possible to, to make positive contributions and, and, and positive impact, right, to the communities, the societies you belong to. Very broadly, there are these three pillars that uh, Guru Nanak, the first guru of the faith, also did put across as three pillars of the faith. They are Nam Japna, which is meditation, meditate on God's name. But the other two are very interesting. They are Kirt Karni, which is an honest uh, living and hard work. And of course, Vanke Shakna, which is to share. So very simple messages, but profoundly deep in the sense that Sikhism is such a worldly religion. We are expected to contribute uh, as, as far as we possibly can in society. And that's something that especially resonates with me. And it's something that I would have definitely internalized and you know hope to do. That's something that guides me as well. I think it's really cool. Even as a human level, I really can connect with that already. Many would also argue that the faith or the founding of the faith was actually a form of activism for Sikhs. Another reason why uh, the faith is, exists and in many ways that we're organized, it, it truly emphasizes equality, whether it's gender, whether it's class. Let's also talk about the Guru Granth Sahib, right, which is the final guru, this started off as a volume of Guru Nanak's poetic compositions. The text comprises 6,000 sabads, or line compositions, which are poetically rendered and set to rhythmic ancient North Indian classical music. The bulk of the scripture is classified into 60 ragas, with each Granth Raga subdivided according to length and order. So it's actually a very, very involved uh, piece of text. The hymns in the scripture are primarily arranged by the ragas in which they are read. I, I mean, I watched some of the videos that actually, Sean, you were kind enough to share with me, and it was actually very interesting to see when you go into some of the places where the Sikhs are worshipping, actually the recitations are a big part of the environment and, and how worship is done. There's also an emphasis on Simran, which is meditation and remembrance of the teachings of the gurus, which can be expressed either musically through kirtan, or internally through Nam Japna, which you kind of mentioned before, as a means to feel God's presence. I'm curious to know more about that, as well as actually this other interesting idea, which is that a lot of the meditation is about teaching followers to transform the five thieves, uh, which are lust, rage, greed, attachment, and ego, which I think all of us suffer from. I'm five out of five of those guys. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, so if you were to walk into a Gurdwara today, I mean, again, I, I'm, my reference point is pre-COVID. Uh, unfortunately, due to COVID, a lot of the activities are in a sense curtailed. Coming back to your earlier point about how, you know, the day-to-day -day life of a Sikh, uh, in, especially in the spiritual realm, right? You're absolutely right. Uh, the Guru Granth Sahib, of course, is our living guru. One thing that's always a source of pride for all Sikhs is that the Guru Granth Sahib also does not just contain uh, the teachings of our gurus, but it was another way uh, of uh, how the community or the, the faith manifests inclusivity because a lot of the teachings are not just of the gurus, but of course from other spiritual leaders as well. And uh, many of them, for example, from other faiths, like such as Muslims, right? There's uh, poet Kabir, for instance, quite extensively quoted in the Guru Granth Sahib. So there's that universality of, of the values and teachings that also one would recognize and are reflected uh, in our holy scripture and the living guru. It's a very fascinating and of course, it contains a lot of rich lessons, right, for us. But I'll, I'll also be the first to admit, in, in present day, the language is a lot less accessible to folks like me. So for example, in Singapore, we don't learn the Punjabi that is contained within the Guru Granth Sahib, right? It's a, it's a more specific type of language that is uh, that is used in the Guru Granth Sahib. But the, the Punjabi that we learn through language centers is a lot more simplified and therefore 
what folks like me uh, tend to rely on are translations, for instance, or, you know, even when we go to the Gurdwara, if a kirtan is sung, for example, what's always helpful to folks like me is to either speak then to the priest or these days, uh, you know, leveraging on tech. There's a lot of software that has translated these and these are projected on screens. Oh, it's like subtitles, is it? Exactly. Sometimes there is also that argument that certain perhaps nuances of meaning, right, uh, do get lost in translation, unfortunately. If we truly want to, to internalize I mean, and, you know, the nature of a lot of these spiritual texts also, they're very esoteric, right? They can be interpreted in, in some ways. So I think it's incumbent on each of us if we truly want to, you know, understand our faith better. We, we just have to put in that time and effort. And it's something as all our gurus, in fact, talk about. So there's a phrase from a kirtan that's something that I refer to, right? If a Sikh takes one step towards the guru, the guru will take thousands of steps towards you. So it always reminds you of that effort that you need to put in. But at the same time, you know, that effort will also be uh, reciprocated in the knowledge uh, that you will gain about faith and also just living your life. I kind of resonate a little bit with that because when we look at old Catholic texts, I mean, we're all based in like old Latin, like Latin that we don't speak about anymore. And this idea of, there's also an activeness about trying to understand that knowledge without trying to fully lock it down into just one thing. It's being meditative about it. It's very meditative. From here, I think it's a great way to segue and talk a little bit about the the Sikhs themselves, right? I'm very interested to, based on, on the research we've done, kind of find out a little bit more about what makes, you know, our modern day Sikhs. Male Sikhs generally have Singh or Lion as their middle or last name, though not all Sikhs are necessarily Sikhs. Likewise, female Sikhs have Kaur, Princess or, or Lioness is the meaning, as their middle or last name. Uh, Sikhs who have undergone the Kande Ki Spot on, spot on. Yes, it's also known as baptism by Kanda, which is an initiation ceremony known as Amrit, are from the day of the initiation known as Khalsa Amridari Sikhs. And they must at all times have on their bodies 5Ks. Now, this, this part is very interesting. When I read through it, I was just talking about it before the show. Like, I never knew this and it wouldn't have been common knowledge, I think. First, there's the kesh or uncut hair, which is kept covered usually by a dastar, also known as a turban. There's the kara, which is an iron or steel bracelet. There's the kapan, a dagger-like sword tucked into a gatra strap or a kamal kasa belt. There is the kachera, which is a cotton undergarment, and kanga, a small wooden comb. Now, most of us would know like the turban. That's like one of the biggest identifiers. But personally, I never knew these other case kind of existed or were part of the identifying markers for seats. Could you share a little bit more about maybe the significance of these of these items? First and foremost, Elliot, I just want to first uh, commend you and also thank you for putting in the effort to, to you know, as far as possible, try and uh, pronounce the, the vernacular terms, right? At least for folks like me who belong to a minority community, it's really nice to see that when, you, when we are having conversations that people really are putting in that effort to try and pronounce correctly uh, and also understand a little bit better about the meanings, right? So thanks for that, Elliot, and modeling uh, you know, behavior for a lot of us. But back to your question, we were talking a little bit about this in fact, about the, you know, the active aspects of the faith and also that activism, right? And a lot of these other cases, they symbolize some of these activism, right? That the, the faith is informed by and, and what the Sikhs are meant to internalize. I'm going to give you maybe an example of uh, two, right? So the Kesh, I think, uncut hair, folks, I think more or less, or rather in Singapore society today, there is that awareness that Sikhs don't cut their hair. So let's talk about the Kara, right? An iron or steel bracelet. So since the time of the Gurus, and of course, once uh, the Khalsa was formalized by our 10th guru, iron or steel 
and and putting it in the form of a bracelet with, with that Sikhs are meant to wear on their right arm. It's also a form of uh, activism. It's actually, it actually symbolizes a couple of things. First, of course, circle a circle bracelet meaning the, the complete unity of God, right? There's no start and no end as well. The second is, in fact, these materials are relatively cheap. They're not expensive to either make or purchase. And uh, that also represents that, you know, if you wear a kara, you try and keep any all of these other 5Ks, you actually are a member of the community. That inclusiveness also comes about. And this activism, in fact, started in a response to it. So if you understand the South Asian context, right, at least the majority faiths of, of the subcontinent, there is that hierarchy, there is a class structure as well. But for Sikhs, uh, it was a response to all of these. And therefore, you know, the kara, for example, it represents that, you know, all you need to do to be a member of the faith is wear a kara and there's no other distinction internally. Flattening the hierarchy, right? Like symbolically. And, you know, even the, the kirpan. So the kirpan is that dagger. And what that is meant to represent is really that a Sikh, uh, if, you wit- if you are witness to any form of injustice, you cannot just be a bystander. You have to intervene. You have to help the oppressed, the vulnerable, for instance. And that's a, these are constant reminders, right? Uh, how we're supposed to internalize the values that these items represent uh, and also how these should inform our behavior, right? Do the Sikhs in Singapore carry then a dagger around? Is that what we should be expecting? That's a great question, Rovik. So for the dagger, maybe to provide, again, some understanding in, in, in India or in Punjab, especially if you are a baptized Sikh, there is no sort of restriction on the size of the dagger. So some of them would in fact carry a full length sword, right? But in Singapore, uh, of course, given <clears throat> our norms uh, and, and also the prevailing laws, so Sikhs, we are allowed to carry a dagger, but there are a couple of conditions attached to it. First, it has to be concealed. Second, it should be be no longer than six inch and it should be blunted. The blade can't be too sharp, right? It needs to be blunted. It's truly just to capture the symbolism of it. But there have been instances in Singapore, you know, especially, I guess, uh, through migration, for instance, where some Sikhs who may not have been all that familiar with the laws, they have uh, inadvertently made that mistake. So maybe to your to your listeners, uh, if you do see a Sikh with a really long sword, you know, it's, it's nothing to be too scared of. But of course, if he's coming charging at you, then perhaps there is some... <laughs> concern and worry you've caused a great injustice basically so. <laughs> so but but there's also a story to this i mean there's this is about how the community in singapore has uh, negotiated right and even in some ways compromised where we understand uh, the reasons and how we want to be a part of larger society. So these kinds of compromises, they were seen as fair, realistic, and the community therefore rationalized these as, okay, they are appropriate adjustments that we can make. There's a global kind of community and, and religion around Sikhism. But of course, today we are, as you explained, so we want to focus and dive into the Sikh community in Singapore. We've talked a bit of a preview around some of the, the practices and norms here. But actually, who was the first Sikh? In Singapore. This is actually quite an interesting story. So there are no records existing which clearly state who was the first Sikh to land here. But many of the older Sikhs still alive in Singapore recall tales of one Maharaj Singh, who was a political prisoner exiled to Singapore by the British after the Second Sikh War in 1849. This guy was a Sikh of noble birth. He refused to concede defeat to the British and formed a guerrilla band with his followers. I think it's important context here to remember that this was in a time where the British were colonial masters to India. And so a lot of the local populations, of course, fought back, especially when there were new rules introduced or new efforts to kind of subjugate, you know, our local populations. And so this was one of the outcomes, right? So while he's a quote-unquote political prisoner, he was also actually trying to, to fight back against what he thought was an injustice. So he was caught and imprisoned before he could really organize himself, though. But his popularity among the Sikhs 
was such that the British decided it was in their interest to <laughs> exile him. So he was sent to Singapore with a manservant, and this was around the 1850s. He was housed in the old Utram Road jail, and by all accounts was a religious person spending long periods of time in prayer and meditation. The tales passed down by word of mouth uh, where they said that he possessed spiritual powers and was working miracles. There is no record of when he died, but it is known that after his death, he was cremated outside of Utram Road Jail, and Sikhs of that period believed he was a saint and built a tomb on the spot where he was cremated. We don't really know where the tomb is these days. It's said that it was uh, near Singapore General Hospital. Five stones were all that remain of the old tomb. These were removed, placed in a new resting place in the forecourt of the Silat Road Temple. I know there was a movie made about this, actually with an old friend of mine, Upneet. What's the impact of this story to the Sikh community in Singapore, the first Sikh? I think Upneet uh, and uh, the producer of the film, The the Saint Soldier, I think Simranjit, right? They've done this extensive uh, film project, Rovik. Uh, that would be an excellent sort of reference if you want to kind of understand about this uh, charismatic figure of Bai Maharaj who first came to Singapore. I mean, in a nutshell, the reason why he found himself in Singapore was that the British, once they eventually were able to capture him because he's so charismatic, right? That they were so afraid that he would still be able to organize rebellions from within prison. And then they decided to send him, send him to the one of the furthest away colonies, right? Which uh, being Singapore at that point uh, from the subcontinent. You know, it impresses a little bit upon you about that energy and, and fervor that sometimes Sikhs bring, right? And especially when it comes to important things like a sense of injustice. So Bai Maharaj, of course, you know, felt that uh, this British annexing of uh, various parts of the subcontinent was a, a form of injustice, right? You know, his, his name is also called uh, the Saint Soldier. I think he captures a lot of what uh, all Sikhs try and aspire to be. There's that bit of humility as well, but there's also that sense of, I'm able to become a leader to others when, you know, there's a, a social cause or some form of injustice that's uh, that taking place and, and there needs to be a response. It's such a Singaporean story as well. And, and let me explain. So this tomb that we found at the Singapore General Hospital, Rovik, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of ambiguity as to who it does in fact belong to. So when it was at the present day Singapore General Hospital grounds, when their tomb was there, you actually found that not just Sikhs, but even other groups were going to pay respects. Uh, some would even organize prayers. But eventually... Uh, what I have come to understand was that there was an individual or family that had, had prayed at this tomb, expressed some desire for some wishes to come true. And those once those wishes came true, they actually held a bit of a prayer program. And then from that point on, it just had that closer association with the Sikh community. And eventually when the government wanted the land, the government and the community just decided that, okay, I think the Sikhs can have ownership over that. And then uh, they decided to also relocate to the current premises where the Sila Road Gurdwara is, right? Even till today, if you were to go to the Sila Road Gurdwara, you would see uh, folks visit that memorial. So it's not really called a tomb, but it's actually a memorial. So in, in Sikhism, you would not find tombs. But of course, uh, memorials are, are fairly common, whether it's in Punjab, India. Uh, and it, of course, in this case, Singapore. So Singapore is quite unique in this sense. But because there's a memorial now, and I did share earlier that other group, faith groups also would come and uh, pay, uh, you know, their their respects or, or just uh, worship as well. So you would find today at present day Silaru Godara that you have members of other faith also visit this memorial. Yeah, it's quite nice to see, uh, and it's something that it brings together, you know, diverse communities in uh, a place of worship that you would otherwise associate with the Sikhs. That's excellent. I mean, I'm so interested to actually go down and kind of like like see it for myself. Like we've driven past before, but I've never really, you know 
taken a very strong like gander at the location itself. This is a great place to start because now that we understand like the first Sikh, let's look a little bit at the early Sikh settlers, right? Where the first wave of Sikhs to land in Singapore came in the form of a sepoys or like the policemen recruited in India to help keep the peace and put down the Chinese gang wars. And in 1873, Captain Speedy recruited 110 Sikhs from the Patiala, Ludhiana, and Ferozpur districts of Punjab for service in Perak, which is in Malaysia. Now, this band was known as the Perak Armed Police. The success of these early recruits prompted the British to recruit more Sikhs. And by 1888, under one Captain Walker, uh, the group had grown and came to be known as the first Perak Sikhs. By 1896, the force numbered 900 and was renamed the Malay States Guides with Walker as their first colonel. Now, meanwhile, the success of the Sikhs as policemen or sepoys in Malaya led the British to bring some down to Singapore, right? Ripple, ripple effects. Uh, the first batch, also from Patiala, Ludhiana, and Afrospa, was brought to Singapore in the late 1870s and formed the first Sikh police contingent stationed at Sepoy Lines, later known as Pearl Hill, overlooking Chinatown. I mean, this makes sense, right? It's still uh, the, the first reason being the Chinese gang wars. I'm not, I'm not surprised they had it overlooking Chinatown. Sikh policemen were also recruited by the Tanjong Paga Dock Company to form the Tanjong Paga Dock Police Force. Now, this is the first time I'm ever hearing of a Tanjong, like a very specific police force or Tanjong Paga, but I mean, you know, Singapore's history is full of these little <laughs> surprises. Very vibrant history as well. Very right? vibrant history. While the first wave of Sikhs came mainly as policemen, by 1885, more Sikhs from other districts in Punjab, namely Gurdaspur, Amritsar, Julunda, and Lahore, uh, were making their own way down to Singapore to seek their fortunes. Most of these Sikhs could not enter the police force as the early recruits restricted subsequent entry to their relatives or fellow district folks. Such, uh, these later migrants became watchmen, additional police constables, small-time businessmen, or they simply went into dairy farming. A lot of the Singaporean stories that Rovik and I have covered always had a very common trend. They came to Singapore to seek their own fortunes at somewhere down the line. A, a very timely like diaspora story for many of our communities. Uh, the story of one Harry Singh Choni from Gurdaspur district is typical of these early migrants. Let me just dive a little bit into this. Uh, Harry Singh came to Singapore in 1885. He traveled like many others on deck, cooking his own meals. And when he landed in Singapore at Tanjong Paga, he was helped by some Sikh policemen on duty who gave him temporary accommodations. One Sundar Singh, a police constable, helped him find a job patrolling the grounds of the Botanic Gardens. And like many of the Sikhs in Singapore then, Harry Singh led a very frugal life, repatriating most of his savings and helping to bring out other relatives. A couple of years after his arrival, Harry Singh brought out his younger brother, Jamal Singh, and found him a job as an additional police constable. The jobs of these APCs in those days was to guard the government run like opium shops, which were then legal in Singapore. Uh, the early Sikhs were either watchmen, like I mentioned, or policemen or dairy farmers. The traders or businessmen in the community came much, much later, actually. It was after the Second World War and established themselves in places like High Street, dealing largely in textiles. The early Sikhs actually placed a lot of emphasis in education and not surprisingly, their children either became civil servants or professionals through their work and study. People like Sean. <laughs> Fair enough. We have some information where in the census of 1921, it recorded only 195 seats in Singapore, 
but the number obviously was set to rise. Now, during World War II, they volunteered in large numbers to serve the British Indian Army, and many of them received accommodations and medals for their bravery. I think one of the main narrative lines from, from this segment really is thinking about uh, the high level of involvement in civil duty, which is mostly like police work and military work. Um, how have these early origins of the Sikh community in Singapore kind of shaped that narrative? Do you, do you find any influences, you know, uh, ripple effects in modern time? First and foremost, the, the, the simple answer to that question is really that, you know, it's a tremendous source of pride, especially for younger Sikhs like myself. I mean, I, I count myself as a younger Sikh, huh? okay? So <laughs> I thought I'd just put that out there as well. But it's it's a tremendous source of pride for, you know, successive generations when we truly understand, you know, some of the adversity struggles that our predecessors had, right, as they migrated from uh, Punjab to, to Singapore. And of course, their contributions, their significant contributions not just uh, in the forces, but even as the decades went on to the, the to the broader Singapore project, right? Through the civil service, for instance, and various other uh, professions that they joined. But that military history is something that, uh, you know, it's it's a very fascinating one because, you know, we talked a little bit about Bai Maharaj Singh. So he represented what the British feared, right? That strong sense of discipline and that strong sense of justice. But a few decades later, it's exactly what the British also leveraged on when they realized that actually the Sikhs, because of this strong sense of faith, this strong sense of justice, they could be actually used because they're such a disciplined community, right? To have them as part of their military would be a tremendous source of strength for any other British uh, military projects. So that is why they recognized that actually, you know, the, the Sikhs, the, the British decided to, you know, label them as a martial race and they really tapped on this discipline that the community had, which was very significantly or largely influenced by aspects of the faith, like the five Ks that we also talked about. So once you have these five Ks, it also instills upon you a certain sort of standard of discipline, right? So the British made it compulsory for any Sikh who wanted to join the forces. They had to be baptized. They had to have all these five Ks. And it was another way of ensuring that discipline among the ranks, right? Maybe a slightly stereotypical view, but you know, there are Sikhs. Uh, I, for example, I'm a Sikh foot two guy uh, do do fact check me on this but i'm somewhat How certain fact check whether you're six foot two i have to go okay. there. <laughs> <laughs> then we can do over a cup of coffee at some point <laughs> bring your measure measuring tape or whatever but the british had very strict criteria for enlistment of sikhs into the forces they had to have a certain height for example a, a certain build right so i think even aspects of like their, their shoulder width was measured Elliot, you mentioned that some of the sikhs who did travel or did aspire to join the forces simply couldn't do that because they didn't meet those uh, stringent criteria, right, uh, that was imposed. But of course, those Sikhs were very enterprising, as you rightly pointed out. So some of them, of course, became watchmen. Uh, some, uh, of course, decided, okay, maybe uh, security services is also not quite their cup of tea. Uh, and I also use that quite deliberately, right? Chai is uh, something that the Sikhs really enjoy. And uh, really, instead of coffee, I take that back, that offer of chai. Ooh, at chai. A yeah, I, I love chai. Let's go get some of that. They set up some businesses, uh, establishments, uh, and, and they went on to become really successful in, in those activities as well. But these stories, I mean, coming back to how they've informed the community, I think on the one hand, uh, there is that tremendous source of pride, but the community, especially younger generations, also feel that, you know what? It shouldn't be the only thing that is on, on the radar of, 
uh, people who are you know not Sikh or non-Sikhs, right? They should. We also want these other significant contributions to be recognized. I mean, you have individuals like uh, who who became politicians, who became the what top level judges. You know, Justice Jurising, if that name rings a bell, uh, and these became models as well for younger generations of Sikhs to aspire toward. You know, and, and make contributions in other areas. I, I hear a very tight knit community that really values that social bond quite a fair Absolutely. bit, and not just part of community, but this is part of a shared history that you guys have acquired through the generations, which I think it means a lot, honestly. We've talked quite a fair bit so far. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after this short break. Don't go anywhere. We have much more to uncover right after this. We're glad you're listening to this episode and are part of the SG Explainers community. You're special because you're part of a group of people who are joining us to understand the Singaporean identity through a wide variety of topics. Elliot and I do this completely out of passion, but we do incur costs to use software, equipment, and not to mention the time spent. We're hoping that you may consider supporting the SG Explained effort in one of two ways. If you click on the podcast description of the podcast you're listening to, you'll see a link that says support this podcast with a link to anchor.fm slash sg dash explain slash support. A contribution as small as 99 cents when added up by all our community members can go a long way for us. The second way is that if you want more bonus content for your buck, we've launched an email newsletter. That's right, all the content that doesn't make it to the podcast, including our own perspectives, videos and pictures, as well as links to more resources can be found in these email digests that provide compact information for your on-the-go reading. For five US dollars a month, basically the cost of a bubble tea, through Substack you can get a digest a week with great content. The internet has allowed you, the consumer, to directly express your support to creators like us without needing to depend on brand sponsors too much. We hope you can give whatever you feel comfortable with. Here at SG Explain, Elliot and I are committed to getting great guests, conducting thorough research, and bringing you quality explainers on all things Singaporean. Thank you for being part of our community. Welcome back from the break. We spent the first half really setting up the context, really placing Sikh culture in history. Now we're going to talk a bit about some of the current phenomena and current institutions and features of the Sikh community in Singapore. The first one and the most obvious to kind of look at is the Gurdwaras, or Sikh temples in Singapore. And this is because religion is an integral part of the daily life of a Sikh. Uh, when the first batch of Sikhs actually were brought to Singapore by the East India Company as policemen, a temple was built for them at Pearls Hill Barracks, where we talked about Sapoy Line. Similarly, the Tanjung Paga Dog Company built a temple for the police in Anson Road. In 1920, a Sindhi merchant donated his house in Queen Street for a temple, and the Sikhs named it Wada Gudwara, meaning the big temple. The management committee consisted of elected representatives of the Maja, Malwa, and Doaba Sikhs. So I actually didn't know that there were sub-communities or subcultures within a Sikh space. What's the difference between these different types of Sikhs? It's actually just uh, geographic locations that they belong to. So the Dwab, for example, is a particular area or region, right, of Punjab. Naturally, you would expect when you talk about landscape or even specific uh, geographical locations, uh, 
within the Punjab, they would have their sort of cultural nuances, whatnot. But religious-wise, there is that consistency across. So they're all Sikhs in the same way. But culturally, it just could be a function of, you know, uh, proximity to the river or different ways of doing uh, agriculture, for instance. So those would be the differences. But otherwise, in terms of the religion, the, the consistency is there. Uh, okay. After the Urban Redevelopment Authority acquired the Queen Street Temple that we just talked about, and its adjoining land, the temple was actually temporarily housed in the former Bukit Ho Swee Community Center at Sengpo Road from December 1979. This then led to plans for a new temple at Towner Road, which were conceived in 1983. Construction began a year later, and this is actually where the new central Sikh temple was completed in 1986 and was built at a cost of $6 million. Uh, it has an air conditioned prayer hall and is soundproofed and was officially opened by the former president. We came we on 1986. This also was where the Central Sikh Gurdwara Board was formalized through the enactment of the CSGB Act, actually, in the Singapore Parliament. So there's actually legislation around this. Both the board and temple's mission encompass the spirit of the community, and through the temple, they aim to propagate Sikh teachings and values, strengthen the Chadi Kala spirit of community, and raise awareness about Sikhs to others. The temple also conducts religious programs for the Sikh community and serves the communal needs of Sikhs living in Singapore. It has an office, dormitory, library, and museum, rooms for visitors, classrooms for religious classes, as well as a grantee's quarters, and grantee is basically a priest. To serve the community better, the temple is also home to a memorial clinic called Dr. Amar Kal Memorial Clinic. Several Sikh organizations, such as the board that we just talked about, the Singapore Sikh Education Foundation and the Sikh Youth Center. How do people engage with the Central Sikh Temple? It seems like a very central place for, for your community. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Rovik. I mean, um, the Central Sikh Gurdwara Board, in fact, manages the, the two main Gurdwaras, uh, for lack of a better word. One, of course, being the Silat Road Gurdwara, where the Bai Maharaj Memorial is today, and is the, the one that's closest to the Singapore General Hospital. And the other one is the present-day Central Sikh Gurdwara, which is at Towner Road, which you talked about. I love the point about the air-conditioned prayer hall. Yeah. Yes, the, <laughs> invention of the century, right? That was, I think, quote-unquote, uh, something our founding prime minister said. <laughs> so the Gurdwara also, if you you know, if you were to study the history of how the Gurdwara has evolved and changed over time, it actually becomes a reflection of what uh, the community's needs are over time, right? So in the past, like, for the example, the Sila Road Gurdwara, and I, I've seen some pictures of the past and then growing up in Singapore for uh, in the early uh, mid mid eighties, right? I, I still recall that the Sila Road Gurdwara used to have like living quarters. So there was still some inward migration uh, of Sikhs. The Gurdwara would be like an initial place for them to just have a home, have meals while they found employment, and then other housing arrangements became available. But today, of course, you would not see that. You would not see like significant uh, living quarters, except of course for staff such as the the priest, uh, the gyanis, right? They are, they are known as priests uh, for the community. So that, of course, is not a significant need today. Those living quarters, but there are other things which you you talked about, Rovik. For example, office space for other community institutions, like uh, there is the Sikh Welfare Council that is in the Central Sikh uh, Gurdwara, uh, and that's an institute 
of public character, by the way, which means that they don't just help the Sikh community, but they help anyone who turns to them for help. And that's by it's that's their mandate, right? As an institute of public character. There's also the Singapore Sikh Education Foundation. And what does this education foundation do? It provides uh, folks like me when we were in school from uh, kindergarten all the way up to A-levels, uh, Punjabi language education comes under the ambit of the, the agency that looks into the teaching and learning of non-Tamil Indian languages for communities in Singapore. We are assessed uh, at PSLE, O-levels, N-levels, A-levels for, for this subject. Uh, it is it is in, it, uh, very aligned with the reasons for having mother tongue languages taught, right? Not just about uh, learning a subject, but also about that cultural ballast and uh, uh, ensuring that you are rooted, right, to your unique identity, the Gudwara. It has truly, at least in the Singapore context, become reflective of, you know, the needs of, of the community today in, in the, the present day needs, whether it's language, other community services. And then, you know, there's also an auditorium which uh, the Young Sikh Association uses uh, on a fairly regular basis again pre-COVID when we used to have our youth events uh, any programs initiatives uh, and also it's a it's a place where we would, we would host uh, you know members who would like to just visit the Gurdwara so non-Sikhs like you know yourself Elliot, Rovik this is also an open invitation to the both of you anytime you'd like to visit the Gurdwara we'd be happy to show you around the auditorium is probably a place that we would start off and then tell you a little bit about the space you're going to experience then we'd bring you around a little bit of a tour and of course end it off with some uh, wonderful langar right <laughs> I've actually driven past the temple or the Gurdwara many times and I've always been very intrigued so I appreciate the invitation every time we have an episode like with a, with a guest and they share these things it only piques our interest more and more so you both uh, indicated that you've driven by I mean of course you know the way life works is that you have other things to attend to and maybe for that reason you never decided to just you know stop and, and go in Are there any other reasons why you may not have uh, decided to take that step were you aware that in fact that was a Sikh temple or did you think that it belonged to some other community like a was it like a mosque for some for example, I mean, growing up Catholic for me, it was always just the only couple of places I'd go. It's it's just church, right? There was something I used to learn in school where it was basically the fact that a lot of Singaporeans have this interfaith sort of thing where they would maybe worship at Chinese temple, but also go to a a Hindu temple, right, to pray just because they I don't know hedging their bets or something. I always grew up in a household where we respect other religions, but you know we would just go to our own place of worship. So it never occurred to me that I could just walk into a to another place of worship and be like, I want to check this place out. It's actually funny that you mentioned that because right next to where I currently live, there's actually a mosque right, right next to my house. And I pass it day in, day out when I walk to the MRT or to the bus stop. And yet, it's never occurred to me that perhaps I should just walk in and find out a little bit more. What a wonderful wake-up call to also be more aware of these things, you know? So on the one end, it's a happy problem. You know, you talked a little bit about respect and... Maybe that respect also was what was holding you back because you didn't want to inadvertently cause offense by entering a space and, you know, not knowing a little bit about the system or the codes of that that govern that space yeah, and sure. inadvertently making a mistake and causing offense. So on the one hand, that's a happy problem where it's actually, it's a good reason, right? You, you didn't want to cause offense. You had a lot of respect for the other, the community and that faith uh, that you would potentially visit, right? By the same token, it also actually reminds us, uh, especially as a minority community in Singapore, that there's a lot more work for us to do as well so that, you know, folks like Elliot, 
feel that firstly, of course, that they're aware of, you know, what goes on in this space and uh, they feel welcome to just walk in at any point. I mean, this is something that, you know, a lot of the work that YSA does as well, the Young Seek Association, we're trying to sort of change these kinds of mindsets that, yeah, it's, it's really great that you are mindful, you are respectful, but don't worry, even if you do make a mistake, uh, you know, you're not going to get punished. Uh, you can just come in and, and, and if it makes you feel better, that's why YSA also decided that we would organize these uh, sort of smaller group visits, right? So that people can get past that stage of, okay, I'm respectful, don't want to cause offense, that's why I'd rather not, but rather I'm respectful, I don't want to cause offense, but I want to walk in, I want to learn more, right? So that's how we're trying to switch uh, culture and mindsets a little bit. I think this is a great, I really think it builds a better sense of like conversation between people of different cultures in Singapore. And we take that for granted, this idea of respect. And it's an even greater upgrade to it. The way we're talking about this right now, the ability to integrate and the ability to understand at an even deeper level than just saying like, okay, that is theirs and this is ours, but more of like, how do these things work together to form a new narrative? I just wanted to make one quick point before we wrap up the point of Gudwaras, which is uh, there are actually many other Gudwaras in Singapore. Uh, the, the two big ones are, as uh, Sean mentioned, the Central Sikh Temple and the Silat Road Sikh Temple. Uh, but there are some in uh, Wilkie Road, in Wilkinson Road, in Chandi Road. So just to say that there are all these smaller uh, Gudwaras out there for different reasons. They were, they were started by different communities. But it's a very uh, important point that actually they are a bit more spread out than, than we realize. And- uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the Sikh practices right here in Singapore. Uh, the first one is called Vaisakhi, which is majorly a major festival for Sikhs. So Vaisakhi, which is celebrated in mid-April, it's supposed to mark the birth of the Sikh order called the Khalsa. Now, during this festival, Sikhs hold kirtans, or the singing of devotional songs, which we talked about in the first half of this episode. They visit the Gudwaras and hold community fairs where people gather to socialize and share festive food in non-COVID times. I think that's like a, like a wonderful, uh, kind of very communal spirit sort of festival. Preparations for the festival can begin up to two weeks ahead with volunteers cleaning and decorating the temple and planning for the food to be served on the day itself. Now, an important feature of all the Gudwaras is the community kitchen run by volunteers and provide langar. So we've been, we've been alluding to this uh, since, since very early on the episode, uh, but it's essentially uh, a term for free food for devotees and visitors on the daily. Those partaking of the vegetarian meal sit together to eat as a symbol of equality. And in addition, kara prasad or blessed pudding is distributed to all members of the congregation when the prayers end. We, we're summing it up. I'm sure it's very rich as a festival and surely the celebrations uh, go much more than, uh, than what we've written here. But perhaps, Sean, you could share with us a little bit about how do Singaporeans, I guess, celebrate this festival? And is there anything in particular? What's the what's the Singaporean flavor added into this mix? <laughs> oh wow! Okay, that's that's a that's a fun one. So I mean, it's it's a significant religious event, as you rightly pointed out, Elliot. It is the it, it commemorates the formalization of the faith, right, and the installation of the Khalsa by our tenth Guru. Uh, Guru Gobind Singh Ji. Prayer sessions are held. It's an opportunity as well for the community to get together. You know, again, unfortunately, due to COVID, the festive aspects have been scaled back. But in the past, what you would expect is that, you know, all of us would wake up early in the morning uh, with our families, go to the Gurdwara, and then you'd meet your friends, folks that I grew up with in the Punjabi language center that I, I talked about a little bit about earlier. So, you know, as, as we get into adulting now, don't <laughs> often run into these friends from school, but uh, Vasaki is a sure thing. I'll, I'll definitely meet these 
these guys. And then, you know, a couple of us have our own children now and it's wonderful to see their families grow. But yeah, so it's it's very festive, very colourful. What would be a uniquely Singapore aspect of it? Nothing profound. Uh, it's actually Tau Sambal. So in the Gurdwaras, <laughs> they would make this. Uh, it's an awesome Tau Sambal. And uh, I would go as far as to say, if you have not tried any of our Gurdwaras Tau Sambal, you haven't had the best Tau Sambal in, in your life yet. La. I'm looking forward to the day I can have this Tau Sambal. There is the significance of Langar uh, in, in the Gurdwaras where it's meant to be uh, about equality, uh, and you know we do sit next to one another so typically actually you would find that uh, you would sit on the floor but of course you know um, especially given our demographic trends in Singapore uh, we have uh, langer halls which have tables benches uh, chairs uh, just to assist individuals but the idea is really that you are sitting at the same level uh, so there's no discrimination no gender demarcation uh, but of course in some gurdwaras I, I will point out that you will sometimes observe that uh, the men do sit in a certain area and the women do sit in a certain area, whether it's in the prayer hall or whether it's in the langar hall. And the question that we get asked is, isn't this some form of a demarcation? And the honest truth is there are some cultural aspects to this. So again, as a religion or as a group uh, that, or, that it finds its origins in South Asia, there was that cultural sort of aspect that also informed how space is organized, right? Where the different gender groups did sit separately. But it wasn't so much so to demarcate that they are separate, but rather to account and accommodate their comfort levels, right? Um, so that, that's an important distinction to make. But otherwise, it's all everyone sits on the floor and has a, a nice, nourishing, vegetarian meal. And this is also important. So even the meal is vegetarian. That also uh, is done so deliberately so that anybody can partake and enjoy a longer uh, meal, right? And this is where the, the unique aspect of Singapore comes in. So actually, if you go to Gurdwaras, what I've always observed is that they also become a reflection of how the Sikhs have integrated into the societies they are part of. So in Singapore, what would be some of the items you would find on the langar would be misiam, but of course vegetarian, right? Misiam. Yeah. Tau Sambal. Uh, and these are fantastic. So, you know, and if you go to Gudras around the world, you would also see this. And just through the, the food they eat, the diet, right? You can actually see that that becomes an indicator of, in fact, of how the Sikhs have integrated very well into the societies they are part of. So these are certain cues that you can look out for, you know. <laughs> if, in fact, if you were to do like a world tour around to, to visit all these places of worship, you'd probably be able to taste a very localized flavor. Yeah. That's fascinating. Let's also talk a little bit about learning Punjab. I think this is a big part of what it means to be like a, a Sikh here in Singapore. As most Sikhs in Singapore actually speak Punjabi, a, a language for which the Singlish word for our listeners out there, you know, the word shok is, is said to actually be derived from. The root word in Punjabi is shau, which means to enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> so like we mentioned earlier in the episode, there is a lot of effort to, you know, to help um, Sikhs in Singapore still retain uh, this ability to speak the language, which is which is very iconic, uh, very integral to the Sikh identity. So we have places um, like the Sikh Welfare Council, the SIWEC, that has supported the students on the financial assistance scheme to fund Punjabi language education. Now, some of the students on FAS are also provided with free books and uniforms a waiver on their monthly fees as well as payment for transport. I think this is this is all very good, like both top-down as well as groundswell sort of like efforts in order to uh, maintain the integrity, in order to promote and in fact uh, recognize right the Sikh community as an integral part of our society. I want to kind of like take this angle and, and, and turn it to Sean here. Maybe you could share with us maybe your personal experiences 
what was it like growing up as a Sikh in Singapore? Like, were there any challenges you faced in terms of maybe staying connected with your culture um, and also like integrating and adapting to, to the, just the world around you as you were growing up? I will start, of course, with the Singapore Sikh Education Foundation, right? I mean, that's a very important institution in our community. I mean, of course, the, the first sort of awareness that I get that I had about my identity as a Sikh was from my immediate family, right? You are part of a larger uh, ecosystem or, you know, you know, there's a proverbial village that it takes to raise a child. So very early on in my life, a huge impact in terms of, you know, what uh, informed my identity, what molded my identity was actually be- being a student of the Singapore Sikh Education Foundation. So how the, the Education Foundation actually teaches us Punjabi language is, of course, uh, very similar to what uh, most of us would encounter in schools, right? They would give us accounts of stories. There would be some imparting, of course, of the knowledge of the language, but also values that are unique or specific to the community or which are important to the community. So that is how, you know, you, that informs your worldview of what it means to be a Sikh and that awareness of your identity, right? Just coincidentally, I, I did interview the, the founding uh, chairman of the Singapore Sikh Education Foundation not some time back. And uh, he shared his motivations for starting the Singapore Sikh Education Foundation. And he was also the individual that kept pressing and working closely eventually with the Ministry of Education to allow Punjabi to be taken as an official second language, right? Uh, it's a fascinating history, but a lot to get into. But one quote that is uh, stuck with me, you know, from that interview that I conducted with him some time ago, he said, without uh, an understanding of Kurumuki or the Punjabi language, uh, young people cannot tap into the, the spring source of their faith, which is the Guru Granth Sahib. And I shared with you earlier that already learning the, the basic Punjabi or the simplified Punjabi or modern Punjabi that I, I learned at the Education Foundation, I still do struggle to understand the Guru Granth Sahib. But again, that, that is also incumbent on me then to put in that effort to you know sharpen, deepen my knowledge, right? So the Singapore Sikh Education Foundation has that very important role for us to understand, pick up our language. And then, of course, we have to journey on, right, beyond that formal education to find out more about our faith. But growing up in Singapore, Apart from the Education Foundation, we also, uh, Sikhs recognize that they are part of larger society and, you know, we, we do contribute. So, for example, I, I was uh, actively in sports, for example, very common Singaporean aspirations as, as a child growing up. But there were some unique challenges as well. Happy to share with you. By the time I was in primary four, so I used to keep the, my cash, right? Long hair, uncut hair, unshorn hair, right? Uh, and then by the time I was in primary four, I did get bullied quite often in school by seniors, uh, you know, and it got very nasty. Uh, but I used to just uh, accept it, you know, and sometimes, I mean, of course, do the, the typical good student thing, go and report to the teachers or the discipline mm-hmm. master, and then they would, of course, follow up, right? Uh, I also recall fondly in primary school that I had one discipline master who also spent a lot of time counseling and just, just ensuring that, you know, I was okay, right? Something did push me to the edge, however. There was once when my younger sister also got bullied and I witnessed it happening, right? And then I reacted and I got into this massive fight because my younger sister got bullied and I also was, I, I, so I kind of knew what she was feeling. And eventually, you know, we had this conversation as a family and I just told my dad that you must understand also my dad is a really fierce, uh, strict individual up to this day as well. I'm, I'm still afraid of him as a mid-30s <laughs> grown man. But, uh, <laughs> I empathize, I empathize. But, but you know, the bullying got uh, a bit too much to bear at some point and then I, I picked up the phone and I called my dad. So my dad was in Canada at that point and I just picked up the phone and said, look, the bullying is getting... Uh, 
intolerable and I think I want to cut my hair. So there was a long pause. And then uh, to my surprise, he actually said, okay, you know, if this is something that you, uh, you need to do, fine. But uh, just maybe spend some time to think about the step before taking it. So I was shocked, like, wow, my dad's actually agreed because it's a significant decision, right? On a personal level, but also for the family. So my dad to today still keeps his hair, still wears the turban. I, I of course, uh, personally have decided when I do uh, participate in the community, for instance, I do wear a turban, but actually I have cut my hair uh, since primary four. So I went into the barber shop at primary four after that, that conversation, that difficult conversation with my dad. I cut my hair, uh, but I was crying at the, at the barber seat while it was going on, but I just decided to suck it up and do it. On, on the one hand, it was a traumatic experience. And, you know, if I sometimes I think back, if I had just turned away and not cut my hair at that point, I don't think I would have ever gone back to a barber shop, right? But uh, it was eventually a step I took. I take full ownership of the decision. But, you know, it's it's not a case of it's a I'm a gone cause or, you know, there's still that opportunity for me to get back onto that journey and explore, reconcile my faith as, as I grow into it, right? But yeah, there are challenges unique to Sikhs, uh, I think belonging to a minority community as well. But having said that, I don't think we want to fixate on those challenges. Of course, we, we do take them head on, we grab it by the horns, but we also have this phrase in the community called Chardi Kala, which is to always stay positive, right? Uh, and what does staying positive in this sense mean? It means that we can actually support one another. We can uh, try and help others when they feel, uh, you know, they're they are either being bullied in some instances. And that's also closely tied to another reason why sometimes I do, uh, I, one of the reasons why I do wear my turban is because I also want to reflect to younger Sikh boys, especially that, you know, I do understand their struggles and I mean, they can. And in fact, some have reached out to me after they've learned a little bit more about my story. I'm tremendously proud, uh, you know, when people also ask me in Singapore, tell me about your faith. Uh, you know, I always used to be a bit unsure, you know, when uh, you, you come across this assertion that it becomes a burden for minorities to always talk about their the community they belong to. I mean, I can understand that, that perspective, but at least for me, it's not been an experience where <clears throat> I find that it's a burden. I, I feel a tremendous source of pride when I have those opportunities to talk about my community like I'm doing with the both of you today. We're, we're in a very privileged position here to, to listen and to share and partake in this moment with you, Sean. I'm honestly very touched and the sharing that you've given us I don't think it's just an inspiration to me but it's something that's time a timely reminder to everyone I guess even to our listeners who sometimes you know I think one of the big reasons why we have this show is to offer new perspectives to share like very personal stories that have a profound rootedness in our in our cultural fabric and and you've just added to that so thank you so much for sharing that story yeah i was just going to express my my gratitude as well for for sharing that personal story and i think it gives us a very real picture of actually what are some of the the issues that the community faces and how we can be a bit more mindful as well yeah i i think let's wrap up by a very quick section on actually community institutions right and we've talked a lot about sea culture being very community centric so i'll mention two the first is the Singapore Khalsa Association, which actually has a very interesting history. It's a brainchild of a few schoolboys at Raffles Institution during the mid-1920s because they basically wanted a Sikh organization for sports and culture. And I can actually now hearing a story about, you know, participating in sports and how, you know, there was, of course, wanting to integrate. I can understand the need for a community-focused sports environment, right? And so this was really what they did. Uh, they played games like hockey, cricket, badminton, kabaddi, which is... Uh, a South Asian game, I remember, and then multiple other games. So that's that's very cool. Uh, it's focused on on sports amongst the youth community. The other is the Sikh Center, which is uh, basically a Sikh community center. And this is the uh, world's first Sikh community center outside of India. 
So they, they serve the needs of the Sikh community and it provides an opportunity for young Sikhs also to get in touch with their cultural and religious identity. So I, I thought these two were very interesting. It just shows how community-centric the community is. And, and you know, together with everything that we've talked about, this has been definitely a lengthier episode, but very rich with, with insights and personal sharings from, from Sean. I have a newfound appreciation for the Sikh community. I'm super excited to visit uh, the Central Sikh Temple. I'm super excited to have some longer. And, you know, I just want to say, uh, you know, as we as we wrap up this episode and as we, you know, look forward to future engagements and learning more, Sean, you know, what, what are your closing thoughts uh, on the future ahead of the Sikh community? What the Singapore society at large can expect from us, I think it's a community that very much wants to be involved, very much wants to engage. Uh, I mean, just using COVID as a reference point, of course, if you were, we talked a little bit about uh, the various ways in which Sikhs have, you know, proactively taken steps to want to contribute, right, to larger national efforts and even this national, this project to Singapore, right? But just looking at COVID itself, I mean, uh, Langer, uh, in Singapore uh, became one of the ways in which uh, the community responded to crisis. We recognized that, look, this is something that uh, we can quickly reorganize resources. And then <clears throat> Langar was provided to needy families that needed it. And then the Gurdwaras and even some of the community groups within uh, the Sikh community in Singapore, they came together uh, re- redirected uh, resources and mobilized these resources to reach out quite effectively uh, to individuals who were impacted by COVID. So this is an example of how, you know, the Sikh community, it truly aspires and wants to serve, contribute to larger societal uh, aims, objectives, to make ultimately Singapore a better place for, for all of us. Uh, so that's what uh, broader Singapore society can expect of the Sikh community. But are there certain challenges and concerns? Uh, no doubt. Uh, I mean, you know, in the beginning, Rovik, <clears throat> you mentioned that our numbers are just 12,000. To give some perspective, I mean, somebody once mentioned to me that actually uh, the Japanese diaspora is larger in number than the Sikh diaspora in Singapore now. Wow, uh, <laughs> that's surprising. Honestly, that is very surprising. I mean, this has some implications, right? So on the one end, through some of the ways in which Sikhs have contributed uh, to Singapore society, there is that visibility. There is still that high signature, right? People are aware of the Sikh community, but as our numbers uh, decline further, which seems to to be the trend where the numbers are declining. I think there is some anxiety among the Sikh community whether, you know, will we still have those kinds of uh, platforms and, and even in some ways, uh, will we be represented appropriately or even uh, proportionately when it comes to maybe significant issues? I mean, notwithstanding, of course, there are some national safeguards. I mean, you have the Presidential uh, Committee on Minority Rights, for example, right? Uh, the Sikhs are represented there. So there are these safeguards, but, you know, just given the short, the, the, the decline in numbers, there will always these in, be these anxieties, you know, whether we are represented adequately uh, at, at various levels of society. And certain privileges that we do enjoy from time to time, do these uh, come up <clears throat> and get questioned? I mean, I, I will just speak very candidly in light of the recent developments in Singapore and positive, of course, I would add uh, about, you know, allowing Muslim women to wear tudongs. So that conversation always tended to happen where there were some comparisons made, you know, if the Sikhs can have it, why can't uh, Muslim women have this? So, these are instances which, again, become a source of anxiety because then the community gets into the spotlight, 
not necessarily for the right reasons, right? In some, some would argue. But again, the, you know, the community does come together and then they do offer a unified response and position. Uh, so in Singapore, at least, uh, these anxieties then somewhat get allayed or, you know, there, there is that sort of mechanism to, to help us navigate these uh, issues as they, as they do come up. But yeah, overall, I would just uh, summarize by saying that uh, I think the community is still very positive in its outlook. And we definitely look forward to to more opportunities to contribute and be very much involved uh, in Singapore. As someone who is a straight Chinese male in Singapore, right? Like it's sometimes very difficult to to talk about these things, or you know, there's a there's a very big oversight that we sometimes have as a as a majority race here. And something that resonated at the very start of this episode was you talking about how when you take one step forward the the leader is supposed to take a thousand another thousand steps forward towards you and i'm sure the context is slightly different i feel like that's something that we all can do right we all can aspire to be when someone is reaching out to you we should reciprocate that same amount of energy that same amount of positivity that same amount of inclusion back and it'll be down to people like me as well to be active members. Do not just wait until a minority says, hey, I know we need to have this conversation, but to be mindful and not just respectful in that way where we create boundaries amongst each other and let let things just occur as they occur. Mostly like ignorance is bliss sort of mentality, but instead become members who seek to see each other as similar members of Singapore. You know, we've done so many episodes, Rovic, but there is something in me which not only have I questioned today, but also a newfound appreciation of the power of conversation, power of invitation. I think Sean, the fact that Sean even invited us, we just, you know, why, why did we, why don't we just go down and see what it's about? Like, that's our question. <laughs> After, what, uh, four seasons, it has never really hit me in that, in that same, like, given that same impact to just ask yourself, why, why not? So thank you so much, Sean. Like, I, I think this has, profoundly impacted the way um, I start thinking about reaching out to, to uh, members of minority communities as well. Every time we do a cultural episode, there's always so much to unpack. Very honestly, just because these cultures are so rich, right? And that's what we get privileged to have in Singapore. So Sean, thank you so much for coming on our show. Thank you for sharing. We're going to put more information about the YSA in the description and you can look forward to more bonus content actually in our Substack newsletter SG Explained Print do subscribe and become one of our beloved community members once again Sean thank you we hope that there's just many more great things ahead for the Sikh community and we look forward to seeing you at the Central Sikh Temple sometime soon <laughs> wonderful to hosting you guys and thanks for the opportunity uh, the pleasure was all ours. well that's all for our episode today thank you all so much for listening we hope you enjoyed it And we'll see you in the next one. Take care.